Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming today. No, you're wondering why I gathered you here. Just kidding. Thank you, Dwight, for uh, reading First Peter for us. Um, before we begin, uh, I'd like to thank Asher and the elders for letting me come up and speak today. They should have known better, but here we are. Notice Asher decided to just take his leave and go into the nursery. This is all his idea, so, you know, let that be. Um, as Asher said, today what we're going to be talking about is essentially why we have confidence in our faith, why we have confidence in the New Testament especially. Um, and typically what will happen is Asher will come up and uh, eloquently and exegetically preach from a specific passage of Scripture, right, which he does week in and week out very well, by the way. Um, today is going to be slightly different. Uh, we're going to talk about a specific subject, that subject being Christian apologetics. Who has heard that term before, Christian apologetics, right? A lot of us. Uh, for those who haven't, uh, all Christian apologetics is, is essentially doing what is told to us to do in 1 Peter 3. So let's open 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, 13 through 15, which Dwight just read for us, but let's just recap. Um, beginning at verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So apologetics is essentially being able to give an answer for the hope that we've been given. Right, And there are people who have dedicated their entire lives to the study of apologetics. Um, and what it really boils down to is this. Who believes in this room that this, this book, not a trick question, this is the Bible. Who believes that this book is true? Show of hands. Everybody. Good. Why? Right? That is the question that apologetics answers. If you're at work, right, and your friends know you're Christians or you, are, uh, you have friends who are agnostic or atheist or, or what have you, and they, and they know that you're a Christian and they see the hope that you have and they say, why do you have that hope? What is your reason, Christian? That's what apologetics seeks to answer, right? And there are four main tenets of apologetics, four main questions that we seek to answer as apologists, um, and they are this. First, does truth exist? This book cannot be true if truth itself does not exist. Second, does God exist? This book cannot be the word of God if God does not exist. Third, are miracles possible? This book is filled with miracles. This book cannot be true if miracles are not possible. And finally, and where we're going to spend the vast majority of our time today, is the New Testament true? So if you look in your bulletin uh, at our outline, we have those first three points. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And finally, is the New Testament true? So, uh, we are going to blitz through the first three points, okay? It's going to be really quick. It's, it might feel a little bit like, like, a, uh, like a seminary lecture or something like that, but just bear with me. We don't have time to go into it all. We could spend a month on each one of these points individually, but we don't have that much time today. We've only got about three hours, so... <laughs> 
We're just going to go very quickly, hit the high points for does truth exist, does God exist, and are miracles possible? And then we're going to settle in on is the New Testament true? You with me? All right. First, does truth exist? Short answer, yes. Uh, In fact, if you think about that question hard enough, it might seem like a really silly question, right? Because in order to ask the question, does truth exist, or even make an argument against the existence of truth, you kind of have to assume that truth exists to begin with, right? In order for me to say that truth doesn't exist, I would have to assume that it is true that truth doesn't exist. Does that make sense? Who's heard things like, there is no such thing as truth, or all truth is relative, or that's true for you but not for me, those types of things? Anybody ever heard those types of things before? Those are all self-defeating statements. Why? Right? If somebody says, hey, there is no such thing as truth, what should you say to that? Are you absolutely sure? Are you absolutely sure that there is no truth? Is it truth? Is it true that there is no truth, essentially, right? Or, um, hey, that's true for you but not for me. Oh, really? Is that true for everybody? Is the fact that you think it's true for you but not for me, is that true for all of us here? Is that right? So in order to, uh, in order to argue against truth, and I know you're thinking it's silly, who would ever argue against the existence of truth? Well, go look at the postmodern world we live in. It's all over the place. People think that there is no such thing as truth, right? Um, in order to argue against the existence of truth, we have to essentially borrow from the existence of truth. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. But they, uh, in order to argue against it, they have to defy what's called the law of non-contradiction, which is essentially this, that two opposing ideas cannot both be true in the same time and in the same sense, right? So uh, two plus two cannot equal four and five at the same time, right? Um, so the law of non-contradiction is very interesting, and there was one medieval philosopher that uh, is quoted as saying that anybody who denies the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits that to be beaten is not the same as not to be beaten, and to be burned is not the same as not to be burned. Right? So does truth exist? Yes. This book can be true because truth does exist. Second, does God exist? This book cannot be the word of God if God does not exist. Short answer, yes. Now, there is a lot of material on why God exists. Um, There are three kind of key points that we use as apologists to argue for the existence of God. The first is a cosmological argument. The second is the teleological argument. And the third is the moral argument. We're going to talk very quickly about the cosmological argument only today, which is essentially the argument from creation, right? Why is there anything rather than nothing at all? That is the argument for the cosmological argument. And it kind of goes like this. The universe had a beginning, and it makes more sense that someone created something out of nothing rather than nothing created something out of nothing, right? And in fact, everybody agrees now that the universe had a beginning. Don't take my word for it. Anybody ever heard of Dr. Stephen Hawking? The guy in the wheelchair? Know who that is, right? This is him saying, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now, you might be saying, Spence, we're in church. We don't believe in the Big Bang here, don't we? What does the Big Bang say? Essentially that in the beginning there was nothing and then bang, everything leapt into existence. We as Christians just know who banged it, right? <laughs> That's the difference. The, big, the evidence for the Big Bang is actually quite good. We don't have uh, enough time in our three-hour session today to go into all of it. 
Um, but safe to say that if Dr. Stephen Hawking, known agnostic and atheist, will admit that the universe had a beginning, we can probably safely assume at least that there is a beginning. Um, and what the Big Bang says is that at first there was nothing, and then bang, everything leapt into existence out of nothing. Does that kind of sound like Genesis 1-1 to anybody? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And that's essentially what the cosmological argument is. It makes more sense that someone created something out of nothing than that nothing created something out of nothing. Either the universe created itself or it didn't create itself. How would the universe create itself if there was no time, no space, no matter, nothing? Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. He said nothing is what rocks dream about. So if at first there was what rocks dream about, and then, bang, there is everything, I think that points to in powerful, timeless, immaterial, spaceless God, or at least a creator, right? Now, we're not saying that's a Christian God here. We've got a couple more steps to go here. Does that make sense? Cosmological argument. There's way, way more there, but we don't have time to go into all of it today. Third, are miracles possible? This book cannot be true if miracles aren't possible. It's filled with miracles. Does that make sense? Short answer. Yes. yes. In fact, we have, uh, let's say this way, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? Anybody? Resurrection. Great, great answer, but not, not this time. Mary? Another good answer. How about the first verse? Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The greatest miracle of all has already occurred, and we have good scientific evidence that it has occurred, by the way. Now, do you think that if a spaceless, timeless, immaterial God, all-powerful, could create water out of nothing, that maybe he could take on flesh as Jesus and walk on that water? Does that make sense? If the first verse of the Bible is true, then at least the rest of the entire Bible is believable, right? If God is powerful enough to create the entire universe out of nothing, yes, he can, he can save Jonah in the belly of a fish for three days. It's pretty easy. He created Jonah from dust, all right? So that's an easy one. Are miracles possible? Yes, and we have good evidence that the first miracle and the greatest miracle of all has already occurred. Moving on to our fourth point. Man, we're just flying through here, right? Fourth point. Is the New Testament true? Short answer. Yes. yes. Okay. This is where we're going to settle in for the rest of the sermon today. Okay? You can look down at your bulletin. We've got four points about is the New Testament true. We're going to start with early sources. Uh, what we mean by early sources is that the New Testament, at least the majority of the New Testament, we know for sure was written within the age of the eyewitness, meaning the New Testament writers could be eyewitnesses themselves or could have known eyewitnesses, right? Um, so starting with the New Testament uh, is the, the early sources. There are two bookends, kind of, uh, in the first century that we know from history to have happened. Nobody disagrees with these things. First, Jesus of Nazareth was killed somewhere around 30 A.D., Nobody, nobody reputable denies that this happened. They might deny that he was God or that he rose from the dead, but everybody agrees that Jesus of Nazareth died in 30-ish, somewhere around 30 AD. Second, the city of Jerusalem and the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So 30 AD is over here. Wait, hold on, you're 30 AD is over here. 
70 AD is over here. And those are kind of bookends for the writing of the New Testament. Additionally, we know that uh, Acts, the book of Acts, was written by 60 AD. Who is Acts about? Peter and Paul. The first half of the book of Acts is written about Peter. The second half of the book of Acts is written about Paul. Now, we know that Paul died at the hands of Nero, and this is actually extra biblical. We know this from other source texts, that Paul died at the hands of Nero somewhere around the mid-60s AD, 65, 66, somewhere in that realm. Now, where is Paul at the end of the book of Acts? He's under house arrest in Rome, right? Not quite dead yet, still alive. So if you are Luke and you are writing the book of Acts and you are writing about Peter and Paul, the two main characters, and you finish the book and they're not dead yet, what does that say about when that book was written? Probably before he died, right? Additionally, we know that um, Luke must have been written before Acts. Why? Right? Same author, okay? So Luke both wrote both Acts and Luke, and at the beginning of Acts, Luke says, in my previous work, O Theophilus, he's referencing Luke, because if you go and read the beginning of Luke, he says, O excellent Theophilus, he's addressing the same person. We don't know, know exactly who Theophilus is, there are some debate on who that person actually was. It could have been a lawyer in Rome for representing Paul. It could have been a high priest, Theophilus. We don't know exactly who, but we know that Luke was written before Acts because Acts ref, uh, Luke references the book of Luke in Acts itself, right? Additionally, we know that 1 Corinthians is written by 55 AD by Paul. More importantly, however, the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 is an orally memorized creed that was from the actual event of the resurrection itself. So why don't we go over there to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read the creed that the early New Testament believers, meaning right from the, the, the resurrection itself on, memorized and said each other, told each other um, as essentially testimony, right? So we are in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. This is Paul. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that being Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. This creed, and this is widely accepted in the historical world, was a result of the actual resurrection itself. This is the testimony that the early church believers, before any of the New Testament was written, by the way, right, before any of the Gospels, before any of the epistles, this is what they would say to each other to spread the word of the Lord right? That is actually from the event itself. Pretty early, right? Now, this one is going to sound a little controversial, but bear with me here. I believe that Paul wrote all of his works before he died. Anybody want to argue on that one? No? We good? Which means that a lot of the New Testament was written at least before the mid-60s. In fact, we know that 
at least beyond a, a shadow of a doubt, that the majority of the New Testament was written before 70 AD. Why? The destruction of the temple, right? The destruction of the temple is mentioned nowhere in the New Testament. And that's a big deal. That's like New York City getting annihilated, just wiped off the face of the earth, right? Like writing the New Testament, if you're making this up, right? Or let's say this, you went down to the local library and you picked out a book about the history of New York City, right? And you went through and you read about the Sons of Liberty and the Statue of Liberty and all the different like Empire State Building and the Twin Towers and all that stuff. And you, you read nothing about 9-11. Not one word. What might you assume about that book? It was written before 9-11, right? Does that make sense? So if you were writing in the New Testament and you were going and you were after 70 A.D., of course you would talk about the, the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, by the way. It was a, like the capital city. Everybody knew the temple. It was a big deal. Actually, there is one person, believe it or not, that does mention the destruction of the temple. Who is that? Jesus. He predicts it in Matthew 24 when he's on his Olivet Discourse, right? And he's, they're, they're exiting the city, and Jesus looks at all the, the buildings, and he says to the apostles, he says, Surely I tell you, not one of these stones will be laid on, on top of the other. The entire city is going to be wiped out. All these buildings are going to be gone. And they ask Jesus, they say, hey, Jesus, when is this going to happen? And he says, before this generation passes away, these things will occur. Now, that's Jesus making a prophecy, right? And yet nobody in the New Testament says anything about it. Nobody says, hey, Jesus was right. You see, he, he predicted this. And then, no, it, it occurred after they finished writing these, these books, right? Does that make sense? Cool. We got a lot more about early stuff, but we're just going to move right along um, to eyewitness details, right? We've, we've established that the New Testament writers were in the age of the eyewitness. They could have been eyewitnesses in terms of when they were writing, or they knew eyewitnesses, right? So, but, but did they confirm that they were eyewitnesses? Did they prove that they were eyewitnesses? Okay. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 3, please. Matthew, Mark, Luke, beginning of the New Testament. Luke chapter 3. And tell me, listen to this, and this is one of those that you just kind of gloss over because there's a lot of names in there that you don't want to read. You know, you just kind of, okay, we'll just skip this little paragraph and move right along, right? But think about this, read this, and tell me if it sounds like Luke is making up a story, okay? Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Triconicus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Does he sound like he's making that up? Right? No. You guys ever watch those like NCIS shows where it's like enhance, 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 and he keeps getting more and more and more and more specific? That's exactly what he's doing here. We know exactly when this was. He gives an exact date. 29 AD, by the way, 15 years after the beginning of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's when this is occurring, right? That would be like me standing up here and saying, in the third year of the Biden administration, when Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House, Chuck Schumer is the Senate Majority Leader, and Kevin Sinn is the Governor of Oklahoma, James Lankford and Mark Wayne Mullen are, are, are Oklahoma Senators, and George Pankin is the Mayor of Enid, during the tenure of Asher Griffin as a pastor of Cross Point Church, Spencer Turk gave a sermon about Christian apologetics to the church in Enid. 
Pretty specific, right? Oh, and by the way, all eight of the people mentioned in the book of Luke there, in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, are known to history outside of the New Testament. They're mentioned elsewhere by other historians and other historical documents and are known to have lived during this time. He's not making this up. He's using real people, right? I would, it would be like me saying all those things and then saying uh, a flying saucer came down and took us all away, right? There are eyewitnesses saying, hey, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly where he's talking about. That didn't happen, right? Luke is getting himself into real big trouble here if he's making all this stuff up. Does that make sense? Cool. In fact, Luke was so precise. Historians love Luke. Luke was so precise that Colin Hammer, uh, who's a Roman historian, went through Acts with a fine-tooth comb and found that no less than 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details were true. He gets small towns in the Mediterranean right. He gets minor politicians right. He gets the slang terms used in those minor... uh, minor towns right. He gets wind directions right. He even gets the depth of the water off of Malta right, right? When Luke and Paul were shipwrecked um, in Acts 27, and they're coming um, from Cyprus, and it's nighttime, and they're in a storm, and they say, oh, uh, we, we were trying to figure out where we were, and we, we tried to figure out how deep the water was. They took soundings, essentially, of the water, and they took the first one, and it was 120 feet. They pulled it back up, went for a little bit longer, took the second one, about 90 feet. And they said, okay, cool, we're pretty close to the shore. We're going to cut our anchors and then try and run aground. And they did, right? Those depths of water are accurate. In fact, if you go to Malta today and you go to Valletta, which is the capital of Malta, and you go to St. Thomas's Bay and you go to the, the museum, the Maritime Museum there in, in Valletta, you can see three anchors that were found in the 1970s by a group of divers in 90 feet of water off the coast of Malta with no ship. They actually found four and then melted one down into dive weights before they knew what they had, right? But the three, the other three are there. Oh, and then a couple years later, a bunch of Italian divers found a shipwreck a couple hundred yards away with no anchors. All the details add up, no? And there's a ton more archaeological evidence, but that's, we don't have that much time in our three hours today, so we're just going to keep pressing on. In fact, Scottish archaeologist Sir William Ramsey spent about 20 years of research in the area of Luke, or I guess the area that Luke wrote about, and his conclusion was that Luke references 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands with no mistakes. And he didn't have Google Earth. Luke was there, right? Or at least people, knew people who were there or were eyewitnesses, right? In fact, um, Sir Ramsey is quoted before he, was, uh, before he began his review of the writings of Luke. He said, I began with a mind unfavorable, but more recently I found myself brought into contact with the Book of Acts as an authority for the topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor. It was gradually borne in upon me that in various details the narrative showed marvelous truth. Eyewitness details, things that they could have only known if they were there and they knew what they were talking about. Does that make sense? In fact, there are certain medical details that confirm the New Testament writers as eyewitnesses. Now you're saying medical details, that's a little weird. Yeah, okay. In the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, remember, when Jesus is kind of at his darkest hour and he's in such anguish and he's 
pleading and, and praying and saying, pass the cup if, if it be your will, Lord, right? And he's in such turmoil and he's in such anguish. What do they say about his sweat? He sweats blood. This is a known and extremely rare medical condition called hematidrosis. Um, and this is a condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood. Now, how would the New Testament writers have known that this would occur if somebody was under an extreme amount of stress unless they actually saw it with their own eyes? We have any medical professionals in here? No. Dang. Well, yeah. You ever seen hematidrosis, Sarah? No, right? It's insanely rare, and is only occur- it only occurs in the most extreme uh, cases of stress or actual physical torment, right? But it's something that actually occurs. It's a real medical condition. How would the New Testament writers have known that that was a thing if they were making it all up? They wouldn't. No way. Additionally, after Jesus died on the cross and the Roman soldier pierces him in the side, what happens? What happens? What comes out of the side when, when he gets stabbed? Blood and water comes out. This is another known medical condition. There actually be one or a couple of medical conditions, but it is also another rare thing that you would never know unless you were actually there. Um, essentially, there's a pooling of blood and plasma in, the, in either the pericardium or the chest cavity, and as a result of the trauma that Jesus sustained during this torture. But again, if you were making it up, how would you know that that would be a medical condition that you would throw into the text if you were, if you were the New Testament writer and you were making up these details, right? They had to have seen it. Had to be real. It had to be right in front of them. They're not making that up. All right, running out of time. We're going to move right on to embarrassing testimony. Embarrassing testimony. Now, this one might sound a little goofy, but hear me out. What embarrassing testimony? The argument for embarrassing testimony essentially is, is that there's a criterion or principle of embarrassment that historians use to figure out if a document or a writing is true or not. It's called the principle of embarrassment, right? It goes like this. If there are embarrassing details to the author or authors in the text, then it's probably true. Not 100%, but probably, right? Now, let me illustrate this this way. How many of you have ever lied to make yourself look good? Uh-oh. couple of you... Might be lying <laughs> to make yourself look good. I don't know. All right, all right. Now, how many of you have ever lied to make yourself look bad? No, don't put your hand up. Stop. <laughs> no one, right? Nobody lies to make themselves look bad. That's stupid. Why would you do that? You only lie to make yourself look good, right? And yet the, in, the New Testament is filled with details that would be embarrassing to both the writers and to Jesus, believe it or not, right? So let's get into some of those. First, the New Testament writers depict themselves as being dim-witted, right? There are numerous occasions, especially throughout the gospel, where they're like, we had no idea what he was talking about. We didn't understand a thing. Did you understand? Oh, I didn't understand him. I was just over here, man, right? They routinely depict themselves as being dim-witted throughout the gospel. Additionally, they depict themselves as being uncaring, right? They fall asleep on Jesus twice at his darkest hour. We just talked about the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus is over there literally sweating blood, and what are the disciples doing? 
eh, just over here sleep. It's no big deal, right? That's not a good look. You're devout disciples of, of Jesus, and you're over there falling asleep on him. Makes themselves out to be uncaring. They don't even give Jesus a proper burial. Who buries Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Who's Joseph of Arimathea? He's part of the Sanhedrin. Who's the Sanhedrin? It's the people who sent Jesus to death. So why would the New Testament writers make Joseph of Arimathea, one of the people who sentenced Jesus to death, out to be the good guy in a made-up story about them? Does that make any sense? No. In fact, they put Jesus in a Jewish tomb. That's a stupid idea if you're making it all up. Why? Because what could the Jews have done if there was no resurrection? Here he is. He's not dead. Or he's not alive, I guess. Better. He's not alive. We have his body, right? But they didn't do that. In fact, for probably a couple centuries, the official uh, excuse for why the tomb was empty by the Jews was that the disciples came and stole the body from the tomb, right? This is mentioned in Matthew, but it's also kind of the official early Jewish explanation, right? So the disciples say, Jesus is risen, and then the Jews say, nope, he, uh, the, the, the guards fell asleep and that the disciples came and stole the body in the middle of the night. Now, why is that a bad explanation for several reasons? The guards, okay, sweet. So if you're a Roman guard in the first century and you are supposed to be guarding a tomb and you fall asleep, what happens to you? <laughs> you're dead, right? Feed them to the fishes. Cool. Now, if you're a Roman guard in the first century and you're supposed to be guarding a tomb and you fall asleep, how do you know what happened? Right? How do they know? Oh, well, you know, uh, we were there and we were asleep, you see, and then we noticed that the disciples came and stole the body. Does that make a lot of sense? Not particularly, right? Additionally, the excuse that's given by the Jews that hey, you know, this, uh, the, the disciples came and stole the body. What does that implicitly imply? Implicitly imply. What does that imply? That the tomb is empty, right? Why would they have to make up a story or at least come up with an excuse for an empty tomb if the tomb isn't empty? It all adds up. All right, continuing on with the uh, embarrassing testimony here. They expose themselves when they get rebuked, meaning the New Testament writers expose themselves when they get rebuked. Peter call, or Jesus calls Peter Satan. Remember that in Mark? You think Mark's sitting there making it up going, hey, Pete, I think I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan today. What do you think? What would Peter say to that? Like, eh, no, how about he calls you Satan, right? In fact, Peter gets drugged through the mud in the New Testament. Jesus calls him Satan. He denies Christ three times. And then in Galatians 2, Paul comes and says to his face in front of everybody, you're wrong, Peter, right? Why would you drag supposedly the early church leader, the first pope, through the mud like that if you were making this story up? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, additionally, why would two apostles, for example, in, in Galatians 2, why would two apostles, apostles be arguing over a theological issue if they were making it all up in the text. Why would you put that in the text if you were the New Testament writers and you were making it up? You wouldn't do that. 
Obviously, it's true. Additionally, they're cowards. What happens when Jesus dies? What do the disciples do? They run away. Run! And who are the brave ones, ladies? The women, right? The women stay and take care of Jesus. And then who, uh, who does Jesus appear to? Who goes and discovers Jesus that the tomb is empty after he's been buried for three days? Who is it? The women, right? While the men were fighting for fear of the Jews, the women go down and discover the empty tomb. Now, who wrote this book? The New Testament? Men, right? Now, what man here is going to make up a story that says that you were hiding for fear of the Jews while the women went down and were the brave ones? Any man right here? No? Tell you what, if I was writing it, I'd be like, okay. We marched right down there to that sissy Roman guard and uh, give him just one backhand, went right down, easy peasy, and then I deadlifted the rock from the mouth of the tomb did a couple squats because it was leg day, and then Jesus walks out of the tomb and congratulates us on our great faith and good looks. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. Right? If you were making that up as a man, would you ever do that? No. Would you ever, also in that culture, would you ever make the women the first witnesses of any event? No. Why? Because the testimony of a woman in those times was not, was not on par with the, those of a man, right? If you were wanting to make something up and have everybody believe it, what you would do is have a reputable male be the first witness and come out and say, this is what happened, right? No, all four Gospels say that the women were the first at the tomb. Now, we know why Jesus appeared to the women first, right? Because he wanted to get the story out. All right, moving on. They even have embarrassing details about Jesus in the text, right? He's considered out of his mind in Mark 3 by his own family. They want to take him. They think he's crazy. They're going to drag him away, go back home, put him in his room, lock the door. He's deserted by many of his followers in John 6. You know, when he says, eat my, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood, a lot of the disciples are like, whoa, Jesus, let's pump the brakes on that one. That's a little crazy. Even his brothers don't believe him until after, until after he's risen. James doesn't believe that he's God. Afterwards, he becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem and he dies as a martyr. But before that, James doesn't believe him. He's called a madman, a drunkard, and demon-possessed. Additionally, he's hung on a tree, right? Crucified on a tree. Why would you, if you were making up a story to the Jews about a Messiah, why would you never hang the Messiah on a tree? Because in Deuteronomy 21, it says that anybody who's hung on a, God, on, a, on a tree is under God's curse. Right? So you would never, if you were making up a, a Messiah, why would you hang Jesus on a tree if you're making it all up? That doesn't make any sense. All right, there's a lot more there, but we're going to move on to excruciating outcomes. Excruciating outcomes. Now, what this essentially says is that the New Testament writers who were in a position to know the truth, right? They knew whether or not Jesus was resurrected or was not resurrected. That's kind of the key here, right? 
They knew whether that was true or not. And yet, they persisted prophesying, or at least professing, that fact to their graves. Many of them excruciatingly so, right? Um, in fact, all of them, with the, the exception of Luke, were devout Jews before the resurrection, right? They were all grown up in that tradition. They all already, already thought that they were God's chosen people, right? And yet, seemingly overnight, they changed their entire belief system and persist in that belief system all the way until their deaths. Many of them were beaten, tortured, and killed before they, were, were, before they died, right? Beaten, tortured, and killed. They were killed before they died. Look out. Um, now, what could have caused these Jews, devout Jews, to adopt that whole new belief system and then persist in that belief system basically overnight? Well, obviously the Holy Spirit, for one, but there's a, another thing that psychologists call an impact event, right? So this is an event, this is normal human psychology, where that is an event that occurs in your life that is so powerful that it affects you and you'll remember it to your dying day, that type of thing, right? For example, where were you when the second plane hit the tower on 9-11? Anybody remember? Right? Everybody remembers. I remember exactly where I was. I remember what I was wearing. I remember the look on my mom's face. I remember everything about it. That's an impact event, right? And that is going to last with us for the rest of our lives. Okay? Here's another one. How many of you remember April 19th, 1995? Show of hands. What was that? Oklahoma City bomber. Right? Impact event. You remember what was going on that day? You remember everything about it? Go back a little further. Anybody remember November 22nd, 1963? Couple. Uh-huh. Pretty much the same people that remember the Oklahoma City bombing. Right? Okay. What was that? That, November 22nd, 1963, is my father's earliest memory. He is two days and two years old. And what he remembers is standing in the living room with my grandmother, his mother, sitting on an ottoman, weeping uncontrollably in front of a, a black and white TV. And he asked my grandmother, he said, Mom, what's going on? And she said, they killed the president, right? President Kennedy was killed that day. Also, C.S. Lewis died that day, by the way. Kind of overshadowed, right? Now, why does my father, who was two years old, remember that event? It was an impact event, right? Now, if you can remember an assassination, a terrorist attack, something like that, that didn't even happen to you, do you think that the disciples could remember a resurrection? Do you think that would impact them? Do you think that would change them forever? If they saw somebody that they knew resurrect from the dead, do you think that'd be an impact event? Do you think that they would remember that for the rest of their lives? Probably, right? In contrast, my earliest memory is being chased by ducks with a handful of breadcrumbs. <laughs> Still an impact event, though, okay? Look out. Um, so what did the New Testament writers have to gain from making up a new religion, right? They were Jews already. 
They already thought that they were God's chosen people. What did they gain from it? Well, they were excommunicated, and then they were beaten, tortured, and killed. Does that sound like a great list of perks from the country club? Probably not, right? In fact, Dwight, we're going to go make a new religion. It's going to be great. Okay? And um, we're going to be beaten, tortured, and killed. What do you say? No? Oh, okay. It was going to be awesome. Oh, well. Too late now. Right? So the real question is, why were they converted? Right? What was the event? What was the thing that hit them so hard that they accepted and persisted in, their, in the profession of faith until they were beaten, tortured, and killed for it, right? They're witnesses to the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. That is why this excruciating testimony is so important, right? Now, you might be thinking, well, Spence, we just talked about 9-11, right? What about the Muslims? What about the Muslims martyr, Muslim martyrs that will go and die for their faith? And there's a big difference between those two. First is that the Muslim martyrs of today have faith that Islam is true, but do they have proof? No. The New Testament writers were in a position to know without a shadow of a doubt whether or not what they were professing is true, and yet they persisted anyways. Many people, well, some people, some people will die for a lie that they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie that they know is a lie, right? You're a New Testament writer and you're making this up. The first stone hits you in the head. What do you say? Oh, <laughs> it was just a joke, right? Just making it all up. Don't worry about it, okay? But they didn't. They persisted all the way until their deaths, including James, by the way, who, was not, who didn't believe until after Jesus has resurrected from the dead and he was appeared to by James in 1 Corinthians 5, by Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, right? 15. Um, James goes on to be the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and he is killed in 62 AD. He's thrown off the temple mountain and then stoned to death, right? Because he decided to believe that his brother was the Messiah. All right, we're running out of time. We're going to start with, we're going to finish up with so what. Uh, and the so what is actually coming in the next couple of weeks while Asher talks through Palm Sunday and Easter. But let me put it this way. This is going to sound weird. It's going to sound heretical, but I'm going to say this. It's not. It's not one of my free heresies. We are not Christians because this book is true. It is true, but that's not why we are Christians. We are Christians because an event occurred some 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on a cross, was buried, and rose from the dead three days later to pay for the sins of the world. And we're going to talk more about that in the next couple of weeks with Asher talks about Palm Sunday and Easter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself in the world, word to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection is the reason for the hope that we have. Please give, give us wisdom and courage to go forth and do your will and make disciples of all nations. Lord, grant us peace, patience, gentleness, and respect as we strive to emulate Christ in our own lives. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your son. Give us your wisdom and help us do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.